Okay, well, this evening, we're, I, I'm preaching through the book of Acts at, uh, at Salem up in Heard County, and so we're going to be looking at a passage in Acts tonight. We're in Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 11, so I encourage you to turn there in your Bibles. And as you're doing that, I'd like to point out something that's startling, and that is it took all of human history, it took from the time of Adam and Eve until approximately 1800, the year 1800, around then, for the earth to be filled with a billion people for the first time. All of human history to 1800 for the first billion. The second billion was achieved in 1930, 130 years later. Okay, The third billion was achieved in less than 30 years, 1959. Okay, In 1970 there were roughly half as many people in the world as there are now. How many people live in the world right now? Not too long ago, we passed the 8 billion mark. Okay, You have people in this room for whom, during their lifetimes, the population of the world has grown from less than 3 billion to 8 billion. And earlier in the service mention was made, I guess this morning was talked about the mortality of life and each person is going to face either eternity in heaven or in hell. Uh, every person needs the Lord. And this great growth brings a pluralism. It brings a proximity where peoples of different nationalities and backgrounds and practices and religions are living alongside one another. And it's more that way in West Georgia, West Georgia than it used to be. And it has its challenges, but it also has its opportunities. You think about for how long the church has been sending out missionaries to other nations, and that's good and we ought to continue that. But we also recognize that the nations have been coming to us. And in this evening's passage, we're going to see Paul arriving in Corinth which was a highly populated city of mixed peoples and cultures, a pluralistic place, and we'll see God's heart for those people. And we'll also see foundational principles for Christians living in a pluralistic world, and there are three simple things you already know, but we'll look at them um, again nevertheless. They are believers need believers Unbelievers need the Lord, and believers need the Lord. Okay, Um, let me lead us in prayer. Father, we do ask that you would bless our reading and hearing, preaching, and application of the Word of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, I'll begin by reading verses 1 through 5. After these things, he, that is Paul, left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. So this is likely the autumn of 50 AD, and Paul makes the somewhat 50-mile trek from Athens to Corinth, And uh, I'd like to tell you four things about the city of Corinth. First of all, it was the capital of the province, the province of Achaia. 
But secondly, it was a major commercial hub. Now, you've got to go back. and My wife can remember everything she learned in sixth grade. The rest of us can't. But I want you to go back to sixth grade and think about the definition of an isthmus. What is an isthmus? An isthmus is a narrow stretch of land that connects two larger bodies of land and separates two bodies of water. The one that probably comes to mind the quickest is where Panama, you know, uh, uh, where the country of Panama is, and eventually they built the Panama Canal so that they could make a much shorter trip than going all the way around South America. Well, Greece, the country of Greece, has its own isthmus, and it's only four miles wide. And that's where Corinth was and is. In fact, there is, they, would you believe they began trying to make a canal there in the 7th century BC? And they, they finally succeeded in the late 1800s. The canal is, if I remember, 3.9 miles wide. But because of that isthmus, it made Corinth a trade center, a hub. Tourists, business travelers, sailors, people traveling by sea, people traveling by land, went through Corinth. And so it was a major player for people in business. Third, Corinth was a highly populous city. There was only a few square miles there, but the population was estimated to be 250,000 free people and about 400,000 slaves made of Romans, Greeks, Jews, Syrians, and other nationalities all crowded there together. And the fourth thing I want you to know about Corinth is it was a city given to sexual immorality. Uh, On a hill in Corinth, there was a temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love, the goddess of fertility. There were approximately a thousand male and female slaves with whom men could go to the temple for the practice of sexual immorality, which was all under the guise of religion. So you had this unrestrained immorality matched with a prosperous commercial hub, and that was what Corinth was like. Interesting, a Greek verb, you know, we've gotten so good these days with Google at creating new verbs. Well, they created a new verb too. It was to Corinthianize. To to Corinthianize meant to practice sexual immorality. But in this place, God had a plan that the gospel would be preached and that people would be saved. And so Paul comes into Corinth. He's he's traveling alone at this point. Uh, He meets Aquila and Priscilla. Uh, And uh, they originally hadn't planned to be in Corinth, but the emperor Claudius had expelled all Jews and Christians from Rome, and so they had come from Rome to Corinth. And they likely were Christians before Paul met them. Luke, the author of the book of, of course, the the Holy Spirit is the ultimate author of all Scripture, but Luke was carried along as the other authors of Scripture by the Holy Spirit as he wrote. And he he wrote the book of, of Acts. 
as well as the book of Luke. But he does not mention them becoming Christian under Paul's ministry. But furthermore, Paul, later when he writes 1 Corinthians, writes about the first converts in the province of Achaia. As I would mentioned, Corinth is in the province of Achaia. But those who were the first converts were not Priscilla and Aquila. So it seems that they were already Christians. And so the three of them begin working together. Uh, now, back then, Jewish fathers taught their sons the family trade, and it would remain in that, that trade remain in the family for generations. Zebedee taught his sons James and John fishing. Jesus learned carpentry from Joseph, and it's presumed that Paul, because he was trained in tent making and probably the art of working with leather, had learned that from his father. And many rabbis supported themselves by manual labor and the trade that they had learned in their youth. Paul later writes in 1 Corinthians that he worked with his own hands, and he writes to the Thessalonians that he worked day and night to support himself in his needs. And so his time is divided between his work earning money by tent making and preaching. Many pastors, I think the majority of pastors, are bivocational that way. I came here, I was bivocational for the first time in 30, 30, 35 years of ministry. And the Lord shut that down. It did not go anywhere. I think he just wanted me to be a full-time pastor. But anyway, but Paul must have been greatly encouraged by the company of Aquila and Priscilla. As it was mentioned in the text, he came from where he came from, Athens. He was in Athens by himself. Okay, He got there, and it says in his spirit he was provoked. There were thousands of idols there. Thousands of idols. And then he had the opportunity to preach at the Areopagus, this pseudo-intellectual society, and he was largely sneered at. Previous towns in which he'd preached the gospel, he'd been beaten and all too. And so he comes to Corinth still by himself, and he meets them. And I just have to think what an encouragement that must have been. Uh, and uh, we think of the passage in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 12, where it says, a cord of strands is not quickly, a cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. There they were, these three Christians in this town, Paul bringing the gospel there. Let me ask you this, do you have friends, Christian friends here in LaGrange or in West Georgia, wherever you live? And if you move to this section, who were the first Christians, the first Christian friends that God provided. And so this leads to that first foundational principle, is that believers need believers. And in the house that, that we purchased up in Heard County, someone had built a fire pit in, um, on the back patio. And uh, if, if you, when the fire is burning, if you take a coal out of that fire pit and stick it on a rock, what happens? It, it, that, that red-hot coal goes to just black and gray, and it, it loses its temperature surprisingly quickly, right? But if you take that coal and you stick it back in the fire, what happens? It begins to glow and heats up again. Christians are like that. We, we have been given by God what's been referred to as the means of grace or means of growth. We're not an island, each person unto himself or herself, and one of the things that God has given us for our spiritual growth is fellowship with other believers. I may have used this illustration before. I heard it years ago from Charles Stanley, but I thought it was excellent. He said, if you take a bag of 
marbles. If you take marbles and put them in a bag and you shake it up and then you open it up, the marbles are largely unchanged. Right? Maybe there's some micro scratches or something, but they're largely unchanged. But if you take ripe grapes and put it in a bag and shake it up, what happens? They ooze on one another. And, and as Christians, we're supposed to be not the bag of marbles, but the bag of grapes and to ooze on one another to encourage one another, build one another up. Believers need believers. We need to encourage one another. We need wisdom from one another. We need to share joys with one another. We need to bear one another's burdens. And uh, apparently the relationship developed so strongly between Paul and Aquila and Priscilla that we'll find out later that he ministers in Corinth 18 months. They're a team, and then when he leaves, they leave with him on the next ministry tour. Okay, now verses 4 and 5. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. So again, Paul at first worked with tents during the week and then preached on the Sabbath. It was his practice to go not only for worship, but to go to the synagogue and to show by the scriptures that this historical Jesus who had come was the fulfillment of what the historical narrative and prophets and psalms and wisdom literature all were pointing toward from the Old Testament to persuade people to believe the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles who were there. But we read, that when Silas and Timothy came from Berea, it appears that they brought funds, likely from the Philippian church. And with these funds, Paul was able to give himself full time to ministry, or at least uh, his work with his hands with, with tents was greatly lessened. And now verses 6 through 8. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. Okay, first let's look at the response of the Jews. Well, let's look at... Yeah, the response of the Jews and then Paul's response to them. Again, Paul's practice when he was traveling was when it was to go first to the Jews to preach the gospel. And their response to him was opposition. It says they resisted and they blasphemed. And, and so Paul, using the, the, the manner of that day, shook out his clothes as to say, I'm done. If you find yourselves cut off from God, the blame for this will rest, will rest entirely on yourselves because he had preached faithfully to them. Now, does this mean he'll never minister to Jews again? No, I think it means he's finished with the Jews there in Corinth. But as we'll see, too, Jews did come to the Lord during his time there. So he no longer went to the synagogue, but he held services in the home of Titius Justice, which was, sort of ironically, it was a house next to the synagogue. And this, this brings uh, to another point I want to mention, is that there are times to move on from ministry. Uh, Jesus, when he uh, sent the 12 out, he said, go 
to the lost sheep of Israel. And as you go, preach this message, the kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that home or town. I tell you the truth, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. Now, years ago, when I was a church planner and pastor in Mooresville, North Carolina, uh, there were two men in our church that opened up a, a nice motorcycle dealership right on the interstate exit off of I-77. And we would have a men's weekly Bible study across the street from the motorcycle shop, uh, a, a breakfast study uh, once a week. And, and then after they built this place or renovated and built it, uh, after the study, I'd just start walking. I'd just walk over there and I'd hang out. And I was meeting men right and left. I thought, well, this is a great place to to, 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 to meet men and to, to maybe reach out with the gospel. And so I, I could never have a motorcycle when I was growing up. My, my, my parents did let me have a go-kart, but they were very much against motorcycles. Even when I was 40, I think my dad said, if you get one, I'll cut off your right index finger. I mean, he, 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 he wouldn't have done that, but, but, um, but uh, he was just very much against it. Well, I was meeting men right and left, and I thought, you know, this might be, I, I've, I've always had an interest in them. I thought, you know, maybe the Lord's, Friday opportunity, I talked to Sydney about it. Sydney's always said, the Lord keeps a short chain on me. She'll let me do anything he lets me do. And, and so I got a motorcycle, and I started riding once a week um, with guys. We'd go over, I can't remember, it was Tuesday or Wednesday evenings. We'd meet at the shop. We'd go ride for maybe 45 minutes to a restaurant or something like that, have dinner, and then ride back. And I really enjoyed it. Um, but what I found, I wasn't seeing any fruit. They mostly just wanted to drink beer and talk about motorcycles. And, and you don't want to mix beer and motorcycles. I didn't mix beer and motorcycles. And I enjoy talking about motorcycles. But, but this, this was north of Charlotte, North Carolina. It would kind of be like North Atlanta was, I don't know, 30, 40 years ago. And while we were there, it went from being pretty rural to being congested. This was also the time when cell phones were becoming popular, you know. And so I started thinking, I'm riding this motorcycle. I got people on cell phones, people who are drinking. There are a lot of more cars around. I got three little daughters. I got a wife. I got a church plant. And it's like, I really like riding motorcycles, but I just don't think, and, but I'm not seeing fruit. I did it for a couple of years, and I wasn't seeing fruit. And I thought, I probably should give it up. And I did, and I still miss it. Even in the past couple of weeks, I was with Sydney one time. We saw a motorcycle, and I said to her, I don't need a motorcycle. You know, just <laughs> sort of telling myself. I did buy a stick shift car just so I could have that sense of man with a machine. I like that. Um, but it was time to move on, right? And Paul evaluated here, it was time to move on from the synagogue. He moves on and look at the fruit. Oh, but what I wanted to say is this. Maybe there's a group. Maybe there's someone in whom you've invested large amounts of time, maybe even resources. And maybe they've resisted and resisted. It may be time to move on. Doesn't mean you don't love them. You can still pray for them. Maybe there'll be a time in the future when their hearts are open. But how long is your life? 80 years, 90 years by strength? So, again, there's time to move on in ministry. Paul moves on and look at the fruit. He leaves the synagogue. He goes next door to the house of Titius Justice. And... 
Lo and behold, the synagogue ruler and his whole family believe in the Lord. And then we read to many of the Corinthians who heard the gospel, believed, and were baptized. In Athens, among the intellectuals, there was only small fruit. And here in this city that has its own verb that is known for its pervasive immorality, many here believe and are baptized. And that's our second foundational principle, believers need the Lord. And let me read to you about this group of believers as Paul later writes to them in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and chapter 6. So again, he's writing to the Corinthians later. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Unbelievers need the Lord. The darkest places need the Lord. And in the darkest places, even a little light will do. Jesus loves sinners. Jesus came to save sinners. The Lord has a heart for the lost. And I think of those sex slaves in the Aphrodite temple and all that's behind that. Of course, I've done a lot of dumb things in my life. But one of them, I was a freshman in college. And the sociology professor wanted us to write a paper on some social, I mean, he was, he was a very good teacher. I don't mean to make a lot of him. He was Dr. Goldstein. He was a very good teacher. And I thought, okay. So I decided I was going to go down to the bus station in Charlotte and observe what was going on and write a paper about what was going on in the bus station in Charlotte. I got down there. It was boring as could be. And I knew that Charlotte had the highest number of prostitutes per capita of any city in the U.S. It's, it's not that way so much now. Now uptown Charlotte's kind of posh. Back then it was not. You could drive up to a stoplight at night and a prostitute come and knock on your window. Anyway, so I decided I'm going to interview a prostitute, and that's what I'm going to write my paper on. So I drive uptown Charlotte, get up there, say, yeah, come on and get in. She gets in. She immediately starts searching for money. She found a dollar in a pocket I didn't even know I had. And I told her, I said, look, I'll pay you, but I don't want to do anything. I just want to talk to you. Is there a place we can go and talk? So she points to this hotel just up the street. We go up there, I pull in the parking lot, I park, I'm in my 79 Cutlass Supreme, and I get out my pad and my paper, and I'm asking her some questions. And I really think I saw a tear or her eye missed over. And I even had these thoughts, you know, maybe, maybe I could meet her more regularly and try to show her there's a different way of life. Anyway, I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden, my door just flies open. I didn't see this guy coming. And he goes, what in the blank are you doing to her? I said, I said, man, I'm not hassling the lady. I said, tell him, I'm not hassling you. And he started getting all like this. She jumped out of the car. I slammed the door. I got out of there. I wrote a paper. I made an 87, a B-plus, risking my life. Dr. Goldstein said it was more of a psychology paper than a sociology paper, and I think he was right. And he was a, he was a good man and a good teacher. 
But my point is this. These sailors and these businessmen get to the Aphrodite temple and they're thinking, woohoo! But I tell you, if you get close to prostitution, there's no woohoo about it. Frequently, prostitution comes with disease, unwanted pregnancies, abortion, battering of women, trauma, stress, depression, anxiety, alcohol and drug abuse, eating orders, self-mutilation, and slavery. I think that was her pimp, right? And he's wondering, what am I doing to her? Or full-fledged slavery in terms of human trafficking. And Jesus was sending Paul to such an immoral city. He's sending the gospel to the most immoral places. We're seeing the gospel around the world. And to whom may God be sending you? Maybe they've lived a loose life, but God uses the power of the gospel to set people free. Unbelievers need the Lord. Okay, now we come to verses 9 through 11. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you. For I have many people in this city. And he, that is Paul, settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Um, You know, we think of the Apostle Paul as being a spiritual superman, and certainly he's a tremendous example to us. Um, But what does the Lord tell him here? He says, do not be afraid any longer. The do not be afraid is a present tense of an imperative that reveals that Paul indeed is fearful. And the Lord says also, do not be silent. Even though Paul is not reticent at this point, he should never become silent in the future. Paul writes subsequently to the Corinthians these words, I was with you in a state of weakness and fear and much trembling. Think of what he's been through in the previous cities. This guy's not naive. He has experienced stoning, being left for dead. He's experienced the cruelty of evil. Opposition in Corinth is strong. But the Lord tells him, don't be afraid. Don't stop speaking. Don't be silent. The Lord tells him to continue to speak and don't be silent. And and the Lord gives Paul three reasons why he should not be afraid and why he should keep on keeping on. And the first one, I think, is probably the best of all. He says, for I am with you. The Lord is making a promise to Paul. I'm not going to abandon you. I'm not going to forsake you. I'm not going to leave you. While you're in Corinth, I am with you. And this leads us to that third foundation principle. Believers need the Lord. In Psalm 18, and I don't have it written down, Psalm 18:29, it says something to the effect of, By you, I can charge against an enemy troop. By you, I can scale a wall. Believers need the Lord. A second reason the Lord uh, uh, gives Paul that he should continue on, not be silent, not be afraid, is he makes a promise. uh, Well, I mean, he doesn't say, I promise you, Paul, but when the Lord says something is true, it is 
absolutely true. God is not a man that should lie, nor son of man that he should change his mind. And, and the Lord tells him that Paul is not going to experience the physical abuse and cruelty that he's experienced in other cities. While he's in Philippi, that's just not going to happen. And I don't know about Paul. If I were Paul, that'd make me want to stay in Corinth all the more. Like, that promise wasn't for all the cities, but it was true in Corinth that he's not going to face that. And he's going to face opposition, but he's not going to face beatings and physical harm. And then the third thing the Lord tells him why I should keep on keeping on is because the Lord has people in Corinth. The Lord is making clear that there are those in the city who've not yet heard the gospel, who are not yet saved, but they were going to be. God is saying that he has many people who have not yet been converted, but who will be one, and he's telling Paul to keep up the work as God works out his divine plans. God guarantees Paul's labors in Corinth will bear eternal fruit in the souls of people. And so what's the result of this? Paul stays 18 months. He likely left in the spring of A.D. 52. A church is raised up in Corinth, which includes prophets and teachers and miracle workers and healers and helpers and people speaking in tongues. And the church continued to grow after Paul left the city. And, and I'm pretty sure the, 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 the Christian faith grew throughout the province, grew more throughout the province of Achaia. Also, too, while he was there in, in Corinth, he wrote First and Second Thessalonians. So a lot was done there. Message, friends, um, do you feel weak and fearful? Do you need encouragement to keep on your Christian walk or in your ministry? And perhaps, you know, fortunately we don't face the level of persecution that Christians in many, many countries face, but people do face persecution or hardships because of their faith. The feelings of fear or weakness could arise out of some opposition to your Christian life and convictions. Or there could be feelings of weakness and fear that arise from totally different circumstances, health issues, concern about your children, your marriage is not where it should be. You know, what the Lord tells Paul here has some things that are 100% applicable to us and things not applicable to us. Uh, The Lord telling Paul, you're not going to do any physical harm in Corinth. That's applicable specifically to to Paul and Corinth. He endured physical afflictions in other places, right? Um, But his promise that I will be with you is 100% applicable to us. And how do we know that? Because in elsewhere in Scripture, it is confirmed also. In Hebrews 13.5, we read this. He himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. And these are words taken from Moses, his words to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6. And the author of Hebrews there in the New Testament applies them to the general believer. God will never desert you. Dear friends, God will never forsake you. Never. I, th- I think one of the Shakespearean plays, is it King Lear? There's the five nevers together. Never, 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 never. God will never forsake you. So, fellow believers, we need the Lord, and he has promised not to desert us.
And Jesus said, where two or three or more are gathered in his name, he is there in, our midst. in, in their midst. Of course, we're more than two or three. We are gathered in his midst. The Lord is with us. Jesus is with us this evening.